The reading from Scripture this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 9 through 22. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. All is a vapor. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much for reading, Steve-O. We, um, since January, you know, we've been thinking about the kingdom of God, and we're in this broad, for several years, really, we'll be considering different aspects of the kingdom of God. But this winter, we've been thinking about how God's kingdom is one that values and prizes beauty over just utility or efficiency, which isn't, by the way, to say that, that it's bad to be efficient or it's bad for something to be useful. But um, for, for so many of us, the way the world operates, we get so hung up on making something more efficient or more useful or optimizing this or that that we end up in a less beautiful world. Have you noticed how many stores are moving to a self-checkout system, right? How, how many times and how many of us especially love, and I put myself in this camp, it's so much easier if I'm in a rush to just go through the self-checkout real quick, scan my groceries, pay for them, and move on. And yet there's something about that, that pursuit of efficiency, because you know the stores wouldn't, they wouldn't put that in if, if it didn't save them money. But there's something about that pursuit of efficiency where we lose sight of the potential for something more beautiful. Even if it's as simple as a meaningful, short, interaction with a tired, overworked cashier. There are so many areas in life that that all of us are tempted towards efficiency and utility over beauty, and yet in God's kingdom, God challenges us to consider 
whether it's worth stopping, slowing down, and pursuing what's beautiful, even if it means things are less efficient. Less efficient. That seems almost, that it is very countercultural. We're going to... Um, we're going to wrap up. I feel like we could go, this has been a rich series for me, and we could probably spend five or six more weeks in this series. We're going to wrap up this morning from Ecclesiastes because there's time, there's time for everything, right, if you know Ecclesiastes. And so there's a time to preach on beauty, and there's a time to preach on something else. And I'll tell you, for some reason, I don't know exactly why, but uh, since the beginning of the year, I've been drawn into this book in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. We think it was written by Solomon. And I don't understand why, because if I'm being honest, I don't really understand it all that well. So I'm going to preach something I don't understand to all of you this morning, and we'll just see how it goes. <laughs> um, no, I really, I feel like I'm a student right along, alongside you. One of the reasons my hunch is that the, the more decades you have in your rearview mirror, the more meaningful and rich, you may find Ecclesiastes. There's something about Solomon's writing that taps into some core and deep human emotions. If you're the type of person who likes things organized and orderly and everything is exactly in its place and it's neatly wrapped up, uh, Ecclesiastes will drive you nuts. But if we're being honest, whose life is really perfectly ordered and organized? Some of us are really good at faking it. We're really good at, at presenting or projecting a life where we really have it all together. But is it really? And even when you work really hard, and even if you were to succeed and get everything under control, something is going to come along in life that's going to shatter that illusion of control that you had in the first place. The COVID pandemic did that to many of us, didn't it? And this is where Solomon really drills down in Ecclesiastes. And the more life you've lived, I think the more this will ring true. Uh, Ecclesiastes very famously begins with this line. The King James puts it this way. It's a pretty famous translation. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's a good way to start a book, right? On a real optimistic note. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain, he asks, by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? That's just an ancient way. If we were to paraphrase that in a modern language, he's saying, what's the point of all of this? What's the point? And each of us, if we're really honest, each of us asks these questions in one way or another. So the beauty of Ecclesiastes is that Solomon gives voice to the questions that we all wonder, but we're especially afraid to ask out loud. We certainly won't ask these questions out loud in church, right? In church, you come and you're supposed to have it all together, and even if things have been a mess at home, you paste a smile on your face and you get through the day, and you definitely don't tell anybody else about the way you just lost your cool with your kids again this morning, or the way you had this incredible argument with, with your spouse or somebody just this morning. And why does that always happen on Sundays, by the way? Like, why is it that you lose your cool more on Sunday mornings than any other day of the week? And Ecclesiastes starts to key in on, like, what? Why? What is going on? It doesn't offer a whole lot of answers. 
There are a couple of responses and reflections in the middle of the uncertainty, but it doesn't offer a lot of answers. And I think the reason is, as one author puts it, he says Ecclesiastes describes life after Eden, but before the new creation. In a unique way to to, um, invoke John Milton, paradise has been lost, but it hasn't been regained yet. And this is one of the most honest books that just describes that that heaviness. So I'm not an expert in this myself. But something in it has been resonating more and more with me, and I hope it will resonate more and more with you. And really, I want to focus on one word this morning. It's a word that's in our reading. It's a word that permeates the whole book. In fact, 38 times in Ecclesiastes, we find this word. It's simply this, vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All of life is vain. That's how the King James translates it. Other, it's a hard word to translate. Other English translations will say it's futile. All of life is futile. Have you ever felt that way? You don't have to raise your hand, but be honest. Have you ever felt that way? There's one translation that says all of life is meaningless. I'm not sure that's the best word, but it does get at some of the despair that we can feel. The way that I've discovered that might be, that's been most helpful for me to translate um, is more of a picture. The beauty of Hebrew is that Hebrew is not a a very linear, orderly language. It's very poetic and artistic and imaginative. And that same Hebrew word that's translated vanity can also be a vapor or a breath. That's helpful for me. I hope that's helpful for me. Put it this way. All of life is a vapor. All of life is a breath. So if you discount like Thursday and Friday, was it Thursday and Friday or Wednesday and Thursday when it was basically summertime? We're in the middle of winter now. Finally, it's winter again yesterday. Did you step outside yesterday or today and it's cold out? And did you just breathe and notice? I haven't done this really since I was a kid. But what happens when it's cold outside and you breathe and you just, and what do you see? You see your, your breath, the vapor. All of life is this, and you see it, and it's gone. All of life is a vapor. You ever felt that? The, the, the vaporness of life? Maybe, maybe it feels like work is just a nonstop grind and there's no end in sight. And what's the point? Maybe it feels like, like you're just struggling and struggling to have a good relationship to somebody who's really close to you and your family. And as hard as you try... You're just trying, and and you you just cannot get on the same page. And if you can't get on the same page with somebody who's that close to you, then what hope is there for anybody else? Life is just a vapor. Maybe you feel it even more literally. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe Maybe they died too soon. Probably all of us know somebody who died too soon. And it makes us reflect on life is just this vapor. Solomon in Ecclesiastes gives voice to this this heavy reality that all of us feel at some point or another. He says, all is here today, gone tomorrow. And for 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes, we sit in that. (laughs) It is good for your soul to sit in that every now and then. 
This is why, by the way, there's that famous line, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and we remind ourselves of that line straight from Ecclesiastes every time we have a funeral. Because we have to remind ourselves that what we have here, in one sense, is not permanent. And we have to do serious business with that. Here's how Solomon puts it. Let me just situate us in Ecclesiastes 3 before we move on. Here's how he puts it. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 again, and then verses 19 through 21. And you can follow along with me in your program and your Bible. He asks, what does the worker gain from his toil? You ever felt like that? What am I working for anyway? I have seen the burden that God has laid on men. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. There's that word. Man has no advantage over the animal. All is a vapor. And all go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. This is a really good question. It's actually one we should ask more often. That if all of life is this a breath, here today, gone tomorrow, then what's the point, what's the point of anything, <laughs> really? What's the point of anything? It's a question that, if we're honest, most of us probably ask, and the more we wrestle with it, the better off we are, but a lot of times we're afraid to answer it. We're afraid to even address it. And like I mentioned, unfortunately, Solomon doesn't give us a neatly packaged, tied-up answer. What's the point of anything? Solomon never tells us. The short answer, probably the best answer, is we don't always know. And maybe it's not for us to know. Because the simple fact is we are not God. I don't know if you notice the difference in the language that Solomon uses when he describes us, humans, and animals. He compares us to animals and when he describes God. He says, everything for us is a vapor. We are made from dust and to dust we shall return. But look at verse 14. He says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. For nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. The the great lie that each of us believes in one way or another is the exact same lie that the serpent told Eve in Genesis 3. Do you remember the story of the Garden of Eden and the serpent tempts Adam and Eve? Do you remember what the serpent tells Eve? He says, if you eat this fruit, you will become like God knowing the difference between good and evil. Now remember, Satan, the serpent was Satan, Satan is a deceiver. He lies. He wants you to think you can become like God. He wants you to think you can have all the answers. He wants you to think you can know why everything is. He wants you to think you can judge whether it's good or bad and assign value to it. He wants you to think you can understand everything that's going on. He wants you to think you're God. And the wisdom in Ecclesiastes comes from us understanding, in fact, we aren't. We aren't. 
We live and we die. Like the animals, Solomon says. But everything God does will endure. Our life is a vapor, just... But God is eternal. He's a Mount Everest that cannot be shaken. So if our life is a vapor, and yet if God is eternal, we're still faced with the same question. What's the point? And how do, how do we respond, respond anyway? And this is what's been shaking me from Ecclesiastes. This is all, we'll find this, it's probably repeated a dozen times in the book, but we see it again in chapter 3. Uh, I want to point your attention to verses 12 and 13. Therefore, I'm filling in verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for men and women than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. Do you know, by the way, uh, different translations translate it differently. One translation says to eat and to drink and to be merry. Did you know that phrase is from Ecclesiastes? Think back with me, if you would, to, to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit. They think they can become like God, and there's a curse. And the curse of Genesis 3 is that our work becomes toil. Lord willing, in September, uh, this is way down the road, but in September, we'll spend the month really examining uh, what does work look like and how can we recover the goodness and the dignity of the work that God calls us to. But what we see in Genesis 3 is that because of sin, work becomes not this life-giving, fulfilling thing that we can pour ourselves into with joy. It becomes painful. And the fields are filled with Thorns and thistles. God tells Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will toil now in the garden, fighting the thorns and the thistles. And, and we all feel this, right? Like we all, we all know somewhere in our core that there's work that is good, that is meaningful, that we, we love to give ourselves to, and yet there are thorns and thistles. Whether those are literal and you're a, you're a farmer and you have to keep pulling weeds, whether they're figurative and you just have a coworker or a boss or a customer who is a thorny person. (laughs) We all feel this. That because of the curse, we spend so much time navigating the thorns and the thistles that we lose the perspective and the ability to be present, to do our work as best as we can, to pour ourselves into it as fully as we can. And by the way, work doesn't just mean what you get paid for. It's not just your nine to five, but it's all of what God calls you to. And yet we realize a certain beauty when we're able to live more fully in the present. Or as Solomon puts it, to be happy, and to do good while we live, to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in our work. This is the gift of God. In other words, if, if life is a vapor, this is what he's kind of getting at. If life is a vapor, just here today, gone tomorrow, if God is eternal, what's the point How do we respond? Maybe the question isn't what's the point, but how do we respond? Solomon says by being as present here and receiving all of life as a gift from God as possible. 
Now, it's a good question to wonder, well, how do I enjoy these things when there are thorns and thistles? I don't enjoy those. But look back with me to verse 14. He says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. He's just said that everything else is a vapor, even in a sense our work. And if you look back to Ecclesiastes 2, he talks about how our work doesn't last. But he says, I know that everything God does will last forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. It's, it's almost as if God is saying, when you follow me, when you trust me, even in this short life, when you revere me, you will find that now you are participating in my work, which endures. But a word of caution, if you pursue your own agenda, if you write and set your own agenda, then your work will suffer the exact same consequences of sin, which are what? That sooner or later, everything we do will rot or decay or rust or break down or become obsolete, just like that really cool flip phone that you got 12 years ago. Why? Because we're we're trying to make ourselves immortal. And Solomon, over and over in Ecclesiastes, reminds us we are not immortal. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. And when we come to grips with our mortality and the vapor of life, so to speak, and when we let that drive us towards the God who is eternal, and when we let it drive us towards his work, then we can find joy and pleasure even here among the thistles and the thorns. It doesn't come naturally, and we worry. We worry. But it's almost so. Um, I was thinking about this this week. My, uh, our youngest daughter, Joanna, is 18 months old. 18 months is a great age. They're old enough to really start interacting and have a relationship, and they're not all kind of floppy, and they're just a little more sturdy, but they're still young enough that there's a deep, deep trust. So we love to play this game that almost every dad and maybe every parent loves to play with their kids, right? So I take her and I throw her in the air and I catch her. I take her again and I throw her in the air and I catch her. And we could do this for hours and she would never get tired of it. And do you know what she does when she's, when she's way up here? She shrieks with joy. And she giggles and she cackles. It's almost like she's choking on her own laughter. Like she's laughing so hard. Now, I'm a lot bigger than she is, and I'm a lot heavier, and I'm a lot stronger than she is. And in her mind, it's never, the thought has never entered her mind, what if daddy drops me? Now, if somebody were proportionally as, as big compared to me as I am to her, so say like a 12-foot, a 1,000-pound person came and grabbed me and threw me up in the air, I would be shrieking too, but in a very different way than my daughter is shrieking. Even if, even if they're, they're strong and there's no way they'll drop me and they're tall and they're... Why? Because running through my mind the whole time is what if, what if, what if, what if. The thought never crosses her mind. There's a tangent here, but just a quick note. Maybe, maybe Jesus was onto something when he called us to have faith like little children.
Joanna trusts deeply. She doesn't know any better than to trust. Like, she does, it's never crossed her mind not to. She trusts. Daddy is big and daddy is strong and daddy's got me and I can be fully present in the moment because of that. Do we really trust? Do you really trust that God is eternal and immortal? Or do you, tr- do you, you're just a little bit unsure, and so you've got to get some of that immortality for yourself. Do you really trust that when you're in the middle of the air feeling weightless and your stomach is starting to go up here, you know how it does at the top of a roller coaster, that God is big enough and strong enough to catch you? Or in the back of your mind, are you thinking, you might drop me and I better figure out an insurance plan? If life is a vapor and God is eternal, then the only thing that makes any sense is to follow the one who is eternal. We get a hint of this in verse 11. And this verse has been a head-scratcher for me, and it still kind of is, but it's, it's starting to become a little bit clearer. Let me just share with you why I think this is kind of the hinge of what's going on. In verse 11, we learn that he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet, they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I didn't look it up, but as far as I can remember, and I've been reading Ecclesiastes over and over since January, as far as I can remember, this is the only time that there's any mention of us lasting beyond the, the vapor. In all the rest of Ecclesiastes, Solomon over and over, life is a vapor, all is vanity, all is futile, all is meaningless. What's the point of anything? And then right here, and yet God has set eternity in the hearts of humankind. That even though life is here today and gone tomorrow, there is something in us that longs for more. that longs for eternity, and yet we cannot be strong enough or clever enough or ingenious enough to grasp that for ourselves. Why would God give us a longing for something we can never achieve? Verse 14 I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. Notice this. God does it so that men will revere him, will trust him. King James says, will fear him. It's as if God has given us a longing for something that only he can satisfy. And because of the curse Because of sin, we keep trying to stuff ourselves with all of these other things that will never fill us up. It's like he's put this this big, you know, a steak and potatoes dinner in front of us, and all we do is keep eating these tiny little chocolate bars, hoping that they'll fill us up, without realizing he's given us exactly what will fill that longing in us. And the little chocolate bars, like, they will taste good. And they will fill you up for for a little while, but in half an hour, you're going to be hungry again. 
And all the while, he's, he's just giving it to you. So why, when the steak and the potatoes are spread out right in front of us, do we opt for the little Hershey's kiss instead? God intends for us to satisfy our longings for eternity with him because everything else will be gone. How do we lay hold of that? Simply put, let me point you to something that occurred about a thousand years after Solomon. The greatest exchange in history, we've seen Solomon talking about God is eternal, we're a vapor. God is eternal, we're a vapor. Do you see the contrast? God is eternal, we're a vapor. And yet in the greatest exchange in history, God, the eternal, the immortal, the never-ending God himself became a vapor. He became human in Jesus Christ. And Jesus was subjected to all of the futility and the vanity and the meaninglessness and the vapor of life. He knew the sorrow of broken family relationships. He knew the pain of losing his best friend far too young. He knew the agony of futility and the vanity and maybe even meaningless of life as he hung on the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If God's forsaken you, what hope do you have? Jesus felt all of that. He took on the, the vaporness, and I wish I had a better word for it, but the vaporness of life. Why? Isn't it something that God became a vapor so that we might become eternal? I don't understand how this exchange works. It doesn't seem like a fair trade to me. But it's not necessarily about understanding everything. We're not God. He is. He knows. He understands. It's simply about living and receiving what he has given us as a gift. And even in those moments and those seasons of life when it seems like nothing lasts and nothing is worth it and nothing is meaningful, we know that God has given us eternity. He's not just placed it in our hearts, but he has raised us to eternity through his son, Jesus. I was chatting just this week um, with some, someone in our church, and this person lost a, a dear family member maybe four or five months ago. Somebody who I, I had met, this person um, who had died, and I'd have a few conversations with him, and I knew from our conversations he just knew and deeply loved Jesus. And he understood. He knew he was going to die, and he knew he was going to die pretty soon. This person says, I was out for a walk with him and we were up at um, Wagon Hill Farm, right on Route 4, up in Dover. And he said that he, he just went around and he probably only had a few months left at this point and we went for a walk. And he started pointing out all of these silly little insignificant things. This wildflower and that bird and this kind of grass. And, and he relished them. He couldn't get over how beautiful every little bit was. There's something beautiful in that, isn't there? The ability to notice that. It comes from recognizing life is a vapor. And this man knew that he only had a few months left. 
And yet when he understood that life is a vapor, but God is eternal, that his God is eternal, and that he would be raised to eternal life with Jesus Christ, his Lord. When he knew that God had become a vapor so that he might become eternal, then he could find meaning in the meaninglessness of it all. Friends, Jesus Christ is that hinge, that linchpin on which all of this turns. Without Jesus, everything really is meaningless. And yet through him, he transforms it into something that never ends. You pray with me. Lord, there are times that we feel like all is just pointless. And that's just deep in the human condition and Those are normal thoughts and feelings. But when we feel those feelings and when we feel those thoughts invading our minds, would you fill our minds even more with the beauty of your son Jesus who experienced the deepest futility so that we might know the deepest meaning in life. Who took on our death so that we could take on his life. Teach us these truths more and more and transform us into the image and the likeness of your son Jesus through them. In Jesus' name, amen.